0: host. No, this is not Marissa, this is Angela hosting today and I'm absolutely fighting for my life here. I'm doing this from a project room at the library. I don't have my mic. I'm trying to use my iPad. It's not an iPad. It's a very shitty Samsung tablet. So anyway, we're just going to roll with it because who would be best suited to do this right now than me? So um, there is the possibility I might get yeeted mid-Zoom as well. Anyway, before we get into all the juicy discussion of um, Portugal versus Australia that happened on Wednesday morning, Um, I did want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we are recording on today, the Wurundjeri and Gadigal people, um, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Um, Yes, and that's what we're here to talk about with Portugal versus Australia, the second of these two um, friendlies in this international window. Uh, Final score, one all. So a draw. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the raw numbers, better than the, the scoreline against Spain. But there was still a lot to kind of dissect there. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, I guess to start with, I might actually throw it to Haru because you, you did a quick summary before the pod and I think that summarised it really well. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the game as a whole and then maybe we'll go into the specifics of what we liked, what we didn't like, um, and what might be next on the cards for the Tillies.
1: Don't worry, guys. This is not war and peace. This is a very brief summary um, as I saw it pre-record. Basically, to me at least, it felt like the first sort of 20-odd minutes, Portugal very much had the Matildas on the ropes, plenty of shots, didn't go in, dominated. Uh, Matildas were well and truly hemmed back. Um, I don't think it helped that, um, that playing Charlie Grant as a centre-back and saw Courtney Nevin out on the left and Grant in particular, I felt like she was under siege, sort of were – just overrun. I think the broadcast described it as a bit shell-shocked. Um, we'll go into more of that. But after that, found a bit of impetus. Um, I think Van Evel and Goro lifted in midfield. And from there, Australia, I thought, got a lot of the game on their terms and really had plenty of chances. Obviously, opened the scoring. Portugal levelled. Had a couple of late chances to win it. Lydia Williams stepped up and saved them both in a 100th cap. And to be honest, on the... Face of things that six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, one all to me felt like a pretty fair reflection of the game. Like Portugal could have easily been up by a few, um, but their shooting was a bit all over the place much the game. And Australia had some chances they didn't bury. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of those ones where both teams would walk away flat that it was that they didn't take all the points, and that's usually a good indication that a draw is about where it's at. Sam.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I think this was a, I mean, obviously it was a much more even game than Spain. Uh, the Matildas haven't played no. a more uneven game than Spain for 25 years. But, you yeah, know, this, this was, a, I think, a more um, a more illustrative and a more accurate reflection of where the Matildas are at the moment. Um, also taking again into consideration that this is a second-string Matildas side effectively. So the fact that they were competitive against a Portugal team who are a week away from starting the Euros I think is encouraging, especially given how many debutants there were, how many players were brought on and played in positions that maybe they weren't used to. Remy Samson being played as a winger, for example, as you mentioned, Charlie Grant. Um, yeah, the, the, the opening 20 minutes, I'd say even probably 25, 30 minutes were, um, yeah, they, they were scary. <laughs> and I, and I, I was feeling for them because you could sort of, you could tell that they, I think, had carried the big hit from the Spain game in terms of confidence into into Portugal. And, you know, they perhaps um, were feeling quite conservative. And that's maybe why they, you uh, didn't really play in the kind of way that we would expect them to. Um, The formation didn't help that or the sort of the structure of the formation didn't really help that. Um, But Portugal, yeah, look, they they should have been up by probably two or more goals by halftime. Their shooting accuracy was pretty appalling. I think it was at around 13%. They had three times as many shots as what Australia did, but we actually had... Equal amount of shots on target, so it sort of goes to show they just weren't hitting the frame of the goal uh, as much as they would have liked to, particularly a week out from the Euros. Um, so, but yeah, but but aside from that sort of opening half hour, I think once the once the team figured out what the tempo of Portugal was once they figured out who their key players were, once they figured out um, their main uh, sort of channels of attack, it seems like Australia really calmed down. It seems like they got their foot on the ball more. It seemed like they had a bit more authority over things. It seemed like they um, were able to anticipate and uh, intercept uh, a little bit more. But one of the, the big, I think, ongoing issues um, over this game was just sort of basic skills. Like I noticed there were so many times where a player's first touch was just too big or their first pass just wasn't, you know, at the pace enough to get to where it needed to go. Or, you know, just little sort of individual errors that Tony Gustafson uh pointed out post match as well, given it was a very, very windy day. So it's hard to control the ball in those kinds of climates. Um not saying it's an excuse and Portugal had to deal with the same thing, but Portugal also are used to that sort of stuff as well. So yeah, it was, it was, I hate to use a cliche, but it was sort of a game of two halves in that respect. I think the second half was a much better showing from the Matildas and it helped, as you mentioned, Harry, with our midfield, our veteran midfielders standing up and also Emily Gilnick really standing up Mm. as well, really sort of forcing herself into that game and, and, um, and dominating that wing, and we saw the the result of that. Right, she assisted the goal. So, yeah, I mean, I think this again, it was a, a better reflection, I think, of where Australia are at in the sense that our sort of second string reserve side is competitive against a team currently ranked thirtieth in the world. So, I don't think it's like a, a terrible disaster. That's just where we are at the moment, and that's okay.
1: Yeah, Emily Gilnick is the one I want to touch on. I think. Unless I've forgotten some game buried back in my consciousness. I know she's scored a couple of goals. That's the best performance she's put in in the Gustafsson era, I think, pretty comfortably. She's had injuries. I feel like she's also been sidelined a bit, like I think not favoured. I was say, it's, it's helped that
2: she's actually been given minutes. Given in these minutes.
1: Yeah. I know she's had injuries as well, but I feel like she's a confidence player who plays best when she feels like there's faith in her. Um, That's the impression I get. Like when she played at her best at victory, Jeff Hopkins really backed her. And we saw that at Brisbane as well. I think it was under Jake Goodship. She had that really good season. But um, just also under Ante Milicic, she she really sort of thrived, especially early um, in his tenure. Um, And we know she's been sort of up and down, but that was clearly the best game she's played. She did all the things that we know she can do, dropping the shoulder, using her strength, using her pace. And we know she can whip in good balls. And, I think, Sam, we knew that everyone's radar was maybe a bit (laughs) affected, a bit of cloud on it maybe, when that cutback to Emily Van Egmon didn't end up in the back of the net because I feel like nine times out of ten you telegraph those ones and Van Egmon buries them, usually in like big moments, right, like the the Kaya Simon layoff is is one I always think of and um, one against New Zealand as well, right? So, um, yeah, that was odd. But, yeah, I digress gilnic fantastic clearly the best she's played for the matildas in a while looked up and about took on that sort of senior role in that forward setup i thought really effectively um was definitely enabled when charlie grant was moved to the pure fullback and they could overlap and there wasn't such isolation and that created chances and that was the that was the change that that worked ultimately um and yeah, unlucky not to have a goal at the end there. She almost pulled off a really special one, and it was it was well saved. But yeah, I think she was clearly clearly the biggest positive on yeah what was a, probably a bit of a meh. Like night, no, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a bad wasn't a bad night. Like it was a probably a bit dow as you say, Sam. There was inaccuracy all over the place, and but I think the point you make about um, errors just some of the sloppiness. And there's one point um, that Harp's pointed out where you could actually hear, Gustafson calling, you know, like, it was like patience or something like that. <laughs> As you calls it, you see even, I think it was a Claire Polkinghorn, just launch this long ball. And you're like, oh, just, I just can't imagine the frustration. And it was quite funny hearing Andy Harper pick it out in real time because I was just thinking it, she's going to launch this. And you just hear the voice coming from the sidelines, like patience. and. Off it goes. Um, But, yeah, the basic skill errors. There were multiple turnovers that should have ended in goals. Um, Katrina Gory with a really bad one, I think, in the first half. Courtney Nevin had a bad one. And then she obviously had the the pretty shocking one for the goal at the end. Um, So one from an experienced player, one from a less experienced player, or a couple from a less experienced player. And they're just the sort of things that Portugal punished the Matildas one time out of three. Spain would have punished them four times out of three, I reckon they would have found a way to get another goal out of that. Like, just, yeah, you can't do much about that. But on the whole, like, it was a more clearly an improved performance than against Spain, against not such a good opposition. So it's hard to to really draw too much from it, I think. Angela, what did, I mean, what did you make of it? I
0: did just want to mention also, I hope I have this correct. Speaking of punishment, um, there was that moment where Charlie Grant got the yellow for a tackle that she did not do, <laughs> which was quite funny. And I think um, you can kind of hear that when you watch the footage, her being like, well, oh, t-
1: it wasn't me. Like, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Everyone's like. Yeah, I think it's Lydia Williams in the background going, Charlie, get out, Charlie, get out. And, like, clearly yeah. everyone else everyone else has clued on to the fact that Courtney Nevin's on one yellow and has done a foul. Yep. Nevin was arguably unlucky to get the first yellow. But if you're on a yellow, regardless of whether you deserve the first one, you've got to be more careful. <laughs> um, Charlie Grant's taken the hit, um, really helped her. out, And that's when you look at the complexion of the game as well. Like, imagine if it went down to 10. Who knows how how things would have played out from there. So it was one of those weird, like, game full of what ifs, like, could Emily and Van Egmond have buried that first goal? Should Portugal, as you say, Sam, put the Matildas 2 or 3 nil down early on? But it, <laughs> Matilda's really probably by the end should have held on for at least a one 0 loss, if not added a second goal. Only for the, the turnover to punish them in the end. So in the end, it's one of those games where it's like you don't know how much you really learn. Like I think we've seen glimpses from um, from Charlie Grant, especially in that previous game. We know that I think we've got a keeper at right back. We knew Emily Gilnick could play. Just needed to actually get given minutes. It's no coincidence I think that she got a good amount of minutes, two games in a row. And the second game she played well. That's not really – we haven't really learned anything there. And then um, in terms of the the midfielders, I think we know if Emily van Egmond and Katrina Gory are getting their foot on the ball and doing the right things, you're going to be in a much better, more composed position. So just one of those games where you know, there's no, I guess, drastic lessons, I suppose. Yeah.
0: I guess sometimes we don't need to learn anything. We can just vibe. Uh, I don't know. I, it would be nice to be able to watch the tildes and, and, and just vibe. Um, that's how I feel sometimes. Anyway, um, and yeah, I, I did. One thing that stood out for me, I really appreciated that um, Ibini converted that goal because just from hazy memories of A League women just gone, there were a couple of moments where she was making the right runs, but just wasn't slotting them in as cleanly as you would expect and it took her a little while to get there um and so yeah but I, I'm, I'm quite pleased that she did get on the end of that and that is her first senior goal um is that how you
1: say that yeah first, first... senior international
0: <laughs> there you go
1: first senior international
0: goal really being warped through this guys um and, and then... just
1: before you jump Angela how good was the ball from Larissa Crummer to open everything up as well yes yes Very I cool. was thinking
0: yeah, I've been a little bit skeptical about Larissa, like Larissa Crummer being called into this group, but that secondary assist from her was just chef's kiss. It was really, really lovely, and I really enjoyed watching that goal. I like watched it like three times in a row, like ah, just absorb it. This is what we could be. Just I?
2: very quickly on Larissa Crummer as well. Uh, maybe total coincidence, but a, a good perhaps measurement of the time that has passed. The last time the Matildas played Portugal back in 2019, Larissa Crummer was being used as a defender. So if anyone remembers the Algarve Cup in 2018, those two games ended nil-nil and in a 2-1 loss for the Matildas. And uh, we've spoken about that particular tournament before as that was a bit of a um, canary in the coal mine, I think, for for Australia. That's where sort of results really started to turn sour and things started to go downhill. So yeah, it's interesting how it all sort of comes back around, huh?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add, I feel like, yeah, Portugal's finishing. It's very much just like, once we can get a shot on target, it's over for you bitches
1: kind of energy. Um, because, well, it's yeah. real with Portugal pre their men's team pre Old Mate Ronaldo joining, right? <laughs> like, yes. like, it's like you got someone who can bang in the goals and there there it is
0: yeah it was it was an interesting interesting game um oh also I think it's worth mentioning um one last thing that we haven't covered that's very special is that this was Lydia Williams's 100th game as a Matilda which is absolutely fantastic and she is the first women's keeper to hit that many games for Australia at international level so just absolutely how good we all love Lydia she's as solid as ever um obviously we, we we had a bit of a discussion last pod um around the kind of ongoing goalkeeper discussion but um I think she put in a really solid innings and as we touched on there um she's very important in terms of leadership and uh hmm. diffusing situations that need to be
1: <laughs> <laughs> and um so I loved so all from- the tributes to Angela from yeah, her teammates yeah.
0: She's obviously just a, a world-class person on and off the field. Um, but, yes, that's that's Anna.
1: Well, I, what I was going to say was um, we've had these two games happen, one an absolute, let's not put it lightly, disaster class, and one where it's like in comparison, very good in comparison, but still just, you know, a game. It, ha- it happened. But I think the question is what have what we learned? from these two games. Second string, 11, bar a few senior players. As I said, one just did not go to plan. One was, you know, fine. <laughs> like the game was fine. Um, but I don't know if it's actually answered any questions people have over this Matildas team. Um, Sam, you were covering both games uh, for work. What's the impression you got in terms of the response? And also, I guess, uh, well, the response in terms of media reaction, but also how the Matildas camp addressed these couple of games.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I think I'll start by sort of reiterating what I said after the Spain game, which is that I do think that these games taught us things. Um, they may not be the lessons that people necessarily want to learn, but I think we did take a couple of big ones. And and Tony Gustafson mentioned that after uh, both games as well. He said that there were. A, uh, a handful of players who he had questions about, but that these two games really solidified their spot in the side. So Charlie Grant is a good one. I think this was her, this was her friendly series to really stamp her authority on being that backup uh, fullback for Ellie Carpenter. I think the performance against Portugal shows that Emily Gilnick has got more to offer, which is really exciting. And I think. Again, this was a really good outing for Katrina Gorey. I think she's getting better and better and she's showing that she can match it with the best countries in the world. So, you know, those are three players who we had questions over coming into this series. And I'm glad that the games resulted in the way that they did because we have, you know, we've learned those lessons and we've got now three, new, three more players who we can add to, to the, the Matildas talent pool, which is wonderful. I think another lesson that we learned, particularly in the Spain game, was that we can actually be tactically flexible and effective. You know, when we set up as that back five against Spain in the first half, I thought that was impressive. I thought that, the you know, how well they held the fort down, particularly given it was a pretty ragtag bunch of defenders who don't usually play together I thought that was pretty impressive. It showed that they are able to work together in a short space of time. They're able to be led by someone like Polkinghorne um, who's able to sort of command that, that um, leadership role and that it's able to work, you know, Spain, uh, most of their shots in the first half had to come from outside the box because our defenders just didn't let them get much closer apart from a couple of chances sort of in behind, but you know, considering the circumstances again, considering the absolute gulf in talent, I thought that was a pretty good thing about the first half of that game. And obviously, it all fell apart in the second because partly because, you know, we changed that formation. But, you know, that's another lesson to learn. Um, in terms of the second part in, in, of your question, Harry, with the reaction, I'm sort of reminded of what happened after South Korea when we got uh, knocked out of the Asian Cup, where we sort of spun off into a bit of an existential crisis and and wondered, you know, what what is happening? Where are the Matildas? are they, are they getting any better? are they, are they worse? Are they what is Tony Gustafson doing? What is his plan? I think a lot of those questions um, are being uh, rehashed after this game partly because, you know, they are still valid. Those questions are still valid. I think people still want to know what the plan is. They still want to know what Australia's style is. They still want to know how we're refining what we have in the build-up to next year. Totally valid questions. Um, And, you know, we're already starting to see some people in media say or suggest that he should get the chop, um, which I think is... uh, Premature personally, um, and also doesn't really take into account, I think, the gravity of the two different projects that he has been charged with here, right? Like when he was hired, he had two jobs basically. The first was to win tournaments or to go as far in tournaments as possible, which he's sort of one for one, you know, we got to fourth place in the Olympics, which was amazing. And then we got knocked out of the Asian cup in the quarterfinal, which was not amazing. So that's sort of one for one. And the second project was to try and bring through this new generation of players. And according to the number of caps that he has handed out over the past 15 months, he has been more active in that sense than most other coaches who have been in charge of the Matildas, particularly over the last five to seven years. So he's sort of ticked that box as well. So if he's to be sacked now, it sort of feels like it's going to be on Football Australia to really justify, well, why did you get him to do these both of these things simultaneously when it's pretty clear that those two projects are most of the time mutually exclusive? You can't do both at the same time. And it was sort of an unfair proposition in the first place to get him to come in and fix up a lot of the problems that he's actually not responsible for. So, Yeah, so I think, you know, we're going to have this, we're going to continue to have this conversation, right? Because in Australian football, if we're not winning, we're having an existential crisis. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens uh, in the next international window that we've got against Canada, those two games. That's presumably going to be an opportunity where we're going to have our full strength squad against a serious contender for at least a semi-final, if not a final of a World Cup. Canada gold medalists, right? This is a good team. So that'll be, I think, the next big opportunity to really assess and ask these questions that everyone is continuing to ask about where we are and what the plan is.
1: Well, yes, yeah, and I think that last point uh, is where I was going to lead into. I mean, if if Canada come over and do what the USA did in that first game of that Friendly Series last year, you'd like I don't want to say it would be curtains, but I I think that would be a pretty damning um, thing to <laughs> to try and look past, right? For me, um, you've talked about the, the different questions. I think you summed them up quite well. The impression I get, and you're obviously referencing Don Bossi's article which um, in the SMH, which effectively says um, if if the Matildas are to make something of the World Cup on home soil, clearly something needs to change and it's looking um, increasingly clear, clear, sorry, with every game that the coach looks, you know, it might have to be him. Um, I think the big question mark that we have, or I have, I guess, is a year out from a World Cup, I feel like is when you should be getting momentum. Like we should be feeling the excitement. We should be seeing things come together. And I feel like that's what people, not a promise, but that was um, effectively what we thought we were going to get. And I recognize what you're saying. There's two projects going on at once. Is that too much? And I think Dom makes a good point in his article about that. They um, they, they do, as you say, Sam, contradict each other at times, like bringing players through, but then you're, not getting the results, but then it also sort of exposes the over-reliance on senior players. Because as much as we've seen a lot of players given caps, we've seen very few, and we'll probably see Charlie Grant become a key player out of necessity. We've seen very few become, I guess, sort of, you know, consistent, reliable. Clear wheel is probably another option as well that you go, these are clear options that you can turn to. These have been successful, I guess, bloodings of depth. And we've seen a bit of Karakuni Cross. We've seen Courtney Nevin up and down, I guess. Tegan Micah I think, is... You know, it was on the radar as the third keeper, and has kicked on, but sort of some injuries and concussions getting in the way. I think the question around just the momentum—it feels like it's not there at the moment. A world, sorry, a World Cup is happening in a year, um, and it, it feels like things have stagnated, if not gone backwards. Um, FIFA rankings certainly aren't the be-all and end-all, and they're all over the shop, especially with North Korea just staying in the same spot forever. One of the great um, <laughs> random things in in world sport. But um, Australia has dropped down to 12th, and the results have just been very patchy to, to bad. Like, that's, um, I mean, I think most people would say that. And I think the question you mentioned, Sam, over style is it feels like you're not seeing the, the style, like one cemented style. And I know there's tactical flexibility. There's being able to play in a, lo- play in a low block when you have to. There's being able to play on the counter. Or being able to play a possession game, fast-paced, take the pace off, whatever you have to do to win, and that's something obviously the US women's national team, where Gustafson is from, is have been very good at. They've been very good at just finding a way to win. Unfortunately, that falls down when you're not winning, right? Like <laughs> it's um, pragmatism, isn't necessarily pretty, so it doesn't necessarily win fans unless you are winning. The Olympics was the example where it paid off, right, um, to a point. Um, but that's not happening at the moment. So I can understand the, the doubts coming in. I can understand, I guess, maybe that, that feeling of frustration. It doesn't help when, you know, the big names aren't playing and you're playing these friendlies and it's not the middle of the night, it's the early hours of the morning, and it doesn't feel like things are, are kicking on. So I think it's pretty understandable, I guess, where the the frustration comes from. And, you know, I think clearly these couple of friendlies bar As we talked about, some good moments against Portugal, some some pretty resolute defending early for the first forty-two minutes, I think against Spain, showed that you know they've got some of these things, but there is clear reliance on these senior players. Like it wasn't a coincidence that when you had, as we said before, Van Egmond and Gori getting on the ball, things could settle. It was Emily Gilnick who you know helped create something in that second game, who's again an experienced player, big body. Um, Yeah, it was just. A bit all over the shop, and we didn't. I guess the frustration as well was we then got to we talked about uh, who's going to get a chance, and some of these players we didn't actually see. And I can't speak for what happened in camp. Like, how did Winona Heatley or Mackenzie Hawksby go in training, for example? I can't. I can't speak to that. I wasn't there, but I imagine it would have been frustrating to go all the way to the other side of the world and not even necessarily get a look in. So, um, yeah, it just feels feels frustrating. Like it's a bit ad hoc, like, and Sam, that probably lends itself to what you're saying about two projects happening at the same time. And we touched on it after the Spain result of why didn't we see some of these players after the New Zealand game um, or in the, sorry, in the New Zealand series rather than now when it feels like the messaging has been about tightening up the squad and bringing together the same group. And I know there's talk about things like load management and players needing breaks and those sorts of things. And they're, they're valid they valid comments like <laughs> they're you know you've got your strength and conditioning teams your medical teams and also the players welfare and we we've touched on this last week all those things are crucially important but there's just lots of things that are just um they don't all line up I guess you go what's the logical conclusion of this well, it's not this it's um yeah I think it's just we're just in a frustrating position I, I agree that the Canada friendlies are going to be intriguing but in regards to Gustafsson, I think we talked about it in our post-Asian Cup dissection, that seemed like the time to move if you were going to move on. coach. if you were going to go, we don't think this is going to work, you'd do it then, wouldn't you? So you've got nearly 18 months to, to turn things around, Sam, rather than the later you, if you go later and later. And this is the other s- problem. Sorry, Sam, I was going to say Angela recognises. It's real. I think I've seen this film before. <laughs> And I did not like the ending, like. Right, like this is
2: exactly, and this is the thing, right? Like if if Football Australia does decide to, to remove him now, number one, who do you bring in at this kind of point? And number two, what kind of situation are they walking into? Because the problems, the structural problems that are underneath the surface of all this are still there they're still going to be there. It's just that you're going to have another person coming in who now has less time to try and figure it all out.
1: Well, so- it's, it's that, same. if they're thinking about that, they have to already realistically be targeting someone, don't they? Like whether it's someone inside Australian football or inside the, the A-League women or someone overseas. I don't want to throw names in because that's unfair on particular coaches to just be thrown into speculation. But if they think they've got someone that can do a better job, they have to be having those conversations now, right? Because the later you leave it, the worse it is. And the other key factor, of course, is the, the players' opinions and where do players feel they sit? And is it the sort of big-name players or the senior players are happy and some French players maybe aren't? Or is there is there discontent? Is Do people feel happy with where things are at? Like, there's so many factors to take in. Like, I spoke to Mary Fowler today. I know you did as well, Sam, for respective pieces for AAP and ABC. And she was very strong to me with um, saying that um, she backed Tony and felt that he was the man. And he's obviously done a lot for her football on a personal level because he's very much backed her in and, you know, played her a lot and given her a lot of freedom to play well. But she very much gave the impression at least that in terms of from Matilda's playing group or at least senior play stocks, which she is now, I think, well and truly a part of, um, they – are happy with the journey they're on. I think they're looking at this more as I don't want to say speed bumps, maybe little setbacks on the way. And the the vibe I got from her was, you know, externally it looks odd that we're doing this, but we can see a purpose in it. And that's fair enough. She's got every right to say that. I think it's also a fair comment that from the outside a lot of us are saying, what is going on? So it's a difficult one. Um, and someone's gonna to have to make a big decision. Because regardless of whether you keep the coach or you sack the coach, someone's going to make a decision, right? So it's a, it's a decision either way. But not one I would uh, want to be in the position of making.
0: What if we all just talked to one another? We just cleared things up. Maybe it would be fine. I don't know. Uh, no, now, now my brain's going to like if we got every angry person in Twitter in a room with like the decision makers at Football Australia and I, I don't think that would work out it's not it's not a good place a but, big um, room <laughs> big, yes, a very big room I think I would I feel like sometimes it would be like that episode of Parks and Rec where they do the town hall meeting anyway um, yeah so all a lot to consider um, and I just mentioned I, I feel like there's Two things worth mentioning before we wrap up. Um, There was some bad news and there was some good news over the past few days. I might start with the bad news. I feel like we'll have less to say about it. It's just like, well, this sucks, full stop. Um, Taylor Ray has done her ACL for the third time. Um, That was reported, I believe, today, um, Thursday, and happened at a training session obviously always devastating to hear this especially for such a young player and as we just saw she just it feels like she can't catch a break like she was meant to be going um and training with the Matildas ahead of the Asian Cup and then got COVID and then now she's actually made it and gotten some minutes and this has happened and yeah it's just it's a bit it's a bit rubbish and I feel bad because I, I talked about how resilient she was last episode and I'm like did I I guess, Taylor Ray. I hope not. Anyway, so all the best to her in her rehab with that. Um, and, yeah, hoping, fingers crossed, she can be back and and, and stronger than ever. But, yeah, Anna, I, I was wondering if you had anything to say in terms of the broader injury context at the moment um, with the Matildas. Is this something yeah. that we should be a little bit worried about?
1: Uh, I'm sure it's something they'll look at. Um, I mean, they've had a tight turnaround from Spain to Portugal and they travel by bus and then they've trained and she's um, she's done her ACL again. So I imagine just this is the sort of thing that happens in these sorts of professional environments. They'll so have a look at what's contributed. Um, obviously, she's got the ACL history in terms of playing loads, training loads. Um, you'd expect at a minimum they thoroughly look into it because it's a devastating blow for such a – Wonderful young player and professional and person, um, and it would have been devastating for her teammates as well. And we talked about them being shell shocked. Um, I wouldn't want to assume that that played into it, but it's pretty um deflating when something like that happens. Um, we have to look at when Holly McNamara went down in that A League Women game from um, Melbourne City, and her teammates just looked shattered for the rest of the game. Like when these things happen, it you know because so many players have gone through injuries, it's devastating. So. Yeah, it will be interesting to see, um, yeah, what comes of it and what what decision Taylor uh, decides to take in terms of her her rehab, a third ACL, because I think she's done one at least one in both her knees. So it's, I think you have to make decisions about how you treat it um, in terms of the grafts and those sorts of things. I am not a physio nor surgeon, so I'm not going to lay out her options. But I, from what I understand, when you do multiple ACLs, you have to look at different options with and recovery time and all those sorts of things. And I think the sad thing for Taylor Ray especially is, unlike an Ellie Carpenter who is a very established player um, in terms of backing her to get back and really push for the World Cup, like it's, it is going to be a proper race in the clock for a player like Taylor, um, who hopefully can be back for the tail end of that extended A-League women's season. Um, but it would be very difficult, I would have thought, for her to push her case for for senior selection for a home World Cup Um She's very resilient, though. So I think if there's any player you could back to to find a way, it's it's someone as as I said, professional and um, yeah, resilient as Taylor A. But yeah, just a real um, yeah sour note to to end that I guess European tour on. But Angela, you did have some good news.
0: I did have some good news. Uh, as you mentioned, Anna, you and Sam both had a chat with. Mary Fowler recently Um, and the good news is she has been announced as joining Manchester City Football Club on a I think it's a four-year deal which is just I can't imagine thinking four years into the future for anything so good for her (laughs) that is a massive commitment but it's also a massive commitment made to an absolutely huge club and it's just I was so excited when I saw i completely unexpected for me at least but yeah um Sam maybe you had a chat with Mary did that come into the conversation uh and also we we'll, I guess we'll be able to read all about it but yeah just some some initial vibes on this this move for Mary yeah I mean like I was
2: I was like what? Like I didn't even know that her wanting to move, make a move like this was even on the cards. You know, I thought she was just chilling in France, she was having a good time, it was all sweet. But then all of a sudden, you know, I come back from football training and I read I open my phone and I'm like, "Oh my god, like first of all, amazing. What an amazing move for a player at her age, 19 to be making, to be in an environment like that, to be surrounded by the players that she's going to be surrounded by." to be able to play Champions League football potentially, to be able to really get like fully professional seasons under her belt for an extended period of time as well. A four-year contract is a big deal still in women's football because, you know, one-year, two-year deals are the vast majority that you see around. So four years shows that the club has some serious plans for her. They're really committed to developing this young player and what a fabulous prospect from a Matilda's perspective as well because we've already seen what Mary Fowler can do for Australia let alone now what she's going to be capable of doing playing against opposition and with players of this quality week in week out she is just going to go miles and miles ahead so yeah I'm, I'm so excited she's so excited as well when mm. I had a chat to her today she was just absolutely buzzing The player who she models her own game off is Kevin De Bruyne, you know, and now she's going to be able to call him effectively a colleague at Manchester City. Like what an amazing moment for such a such a cool young woman as well. Like she's really, I think, settling into who she is, what she's about, what she wants to do with her career. It just it's all the things all the all the ducks are in a row for Mary Fowler. I'm so stoked for her.
1: I said to her, Sam, you've got the world at your feet, Mary. Like, that's how it feels to me. She's 19. She's signed a long-term deal with one of the biggest clubs in the world. She's already, if not already a star, the the emerging star of the Matildas in a team that's got Sam Kerr in it. Like, she is clearly the heir apparent while playing at the same time as Sam Kerr. She is already a superstar and she's only going to get better. Um, And she is very humble, so articulate, speaks so well, speaks beyond her years, I'd say, Sam. I think you agree with me on that pre-pod. Just like you wouldn't think that (laughs) she's 19 the way she talks and she's so clearly dedicated to her football but um, very grounded at the same time um, in terms of uh, obviously very family-based, a hard trainer, works really hard. Um, I remember Sam Kerr saying to me last year that like two years on from Mary sort of getting called in, to that world cup squad. She was like a completely different player in person. Like had just sort of found herself. Um, Kerr reckons she's the best finisher on both feet in the Matildas. Like she's really got it all. And the exciting thing is um, friend of the pod, Amy Rusky, um alerted me to this is that she'll get to play really early on because city have their champions league first qualifying round starting August 18. And they really need players who aren't going to be at the euros, obviously to, to play a lot. So that would be Fowler, Alana Kennedy, Hayley Razo. You'd think all of those would, would be involved straight away. She jets over to the UK in a couple of weeks to start pre season, And as such a diligent and smart and driven young player, and I think that's what impressed me, even the initial release, and then with our respective interviews, Sam, she's so driven. She wants to be re- a really, really good player. She's she's not sort of sitting back and, you know, cruising through her career. Like, she wants mm. to make things happen, um, and that. That is super exciting. Um, but at the same time staying very, very level-headed and was very much about how can City develop me and how can I learn and fulfill my potential. So very confident, but at the same time humble. And I think that's what it really does take um for a lot of players to to succeed at that top level. So yeah, super move.
0: How good. You
1: love to see it. All of the above.
0: Yes, and how exciting that she will also be joining. Um, Matilda's Haley Brasso and Alana Kennedy. So, more playing together ahead of a World Cup can only be a good thing, I assume. Um, yeah, I think that wraps it up for today. Uh, just, I guess, to give our listeners a bit of a fill in for the next few weeks, um, Harrow and I are racking off overseas like every other Australian in their dog um, for, for quite a significant chunk of time. Um, I'll still be present. Um, I'm hoping to do some vlogs and that kind of thing from the Euros where I will be attending as a fan. Very vibes-based. No analysis here. Just going to be drinking bebs and watching games and having a nice time. Spending a lot of time on buses. A lot of time on buses. Um, It's fine. It's going to be fantastic. And yes, Harrow will also be, be away for a little bit. So you'll be left in the safe hands of Marissa and Sam. I'm not sure what shenanigans they'll be getting up to. But we will be back as well for the under-20s um, FIFA Women's World Cup, which is happening in Costa Rica in August. Um, unfortunately, none of us will be attending, but we will be watching the games and bringing new coverage of that, which is very exciting. And then, of course, there are the friendlies, the Matildas versus Canada, which are taking place in early September, I believe, the 3rd and the 9th, if I've got that right in my head, or the 6th and the 9th. I don't know. Maybe, Maybe Google it. I'd, what what do you want from me? Accurate information, anyway. Um, and so that's going to be very exciting. Tickets are actually on sale now, I believe, so you can get some of those. Um, and the games will be taking place in the freshly refurbished Allianz Stadium, so it should be a good time. The the surface I expect
1: will be pristine.
0: Anyway, um, thanks as always to ESPN for letting us do this. Um, I hope that you will still have me back after I've hosted. There's a <laughs> Good enough job, um, and yeah, thank you to Sam and Anna for hopping on, and we'll we'll see. Uh, wait, no, got to gear up, got to gear up. Thanks for hosting, Angela. You're welcome. You're you so welcome. Um, I'm just I'm just channeling Marissa. Now I'm thinking about it too much. It's like when you try and like hit the crossbar, and then it just doesn't get any air at all. Anyway, thanks so much, everyone. And until next time, see you.